This is Foster McCurley from the Wrestling with the Word podcast, and this is our discussion of the Bible text for March 14, 2010. This is episode 64. Four Bible passages are listed in the Revised Common Lectionary for each Sunday. I try to connect most of them by the way they relate to the theme in the Gospel for the day. This Sunday is called the Fourth Sunday in Lent, Year C. Check out the show notes on the lessons at wrestlingwiththeword.com. You will find there some comments on the Hebrew and Greek words that are important in the passages, as well as some cross-references to other biblical texts that help illumine the ones we are studying. The biblical texts for the fourth Sunday in Lent are these. The psalm is number 32. The first lesson is Joshua chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. The second lesson is 2 Corinthians 5, verses 16 through 21, and the gospel for the day really is the well-known parable of the prodigal son. It's Luke 15, verses 1 to 3, and verses 11b through 32. Let's talk about God. What kind of God actually do we worship? That question is by no means frivolous. In fact, it is a matter of life and death, because the kind of God that we worship determines how we live our lives, how we face our deaths, and how we laugh with God through it all. As Jesus told the parable of the prodigal son, he actually raised our sights above the standards of religion to envision a waiting father ready to throw a party. Some people believe in a God who is basically a computer programmer, and so human life is a matter of passively receiving what the big programmer in the sky set up at the beginning of time. Theologically, we call that predestination, and those who live by it accept no responsibility for what they do. Things happen to them, and they accept it stoically, like the guy who tripped over the loose runner on the stairs, fell down the steps, brushed himself off, recognized it was all predestined, and said, I'm glad that's over. Some people believe in an angry God, one who sits like a policeman near a traffic light just waiting for someone to make a mistake and then nail him. I sat on an airplane one time flying from Seattle to Pennsylvania, sitting beside a young man. He looked over my shoulder to see what I was reading, and when he realized it was a book of theology, he asked, Are you a minister? I admitted I was. He said he needed to talk to a minister about his wife. He started his story as we were taking off from Seattle, continued it right through a 45-minute layover in Minneapolis, right to our destination in Philadelphia. He told me about one incident after another in which his wife has taken away all the joys of life. She yells at him when he drinks a glass of wine or beer when they're out with friends. She chastises him if he laughs at a joke a friend tells. On and on and on he went. I was about to ask him why he married her in the first place, but I thought better about the question, and and I asked instead, how long has she been this way? He said, for the past four years. I said, what happened four years ago? He said, she became a Christian. 
He then told me that she attends a church where the minister preaches about God's wrath against the wicked, about God's insistence on every moral law, whether it be divine or human in origin. Her God really is one who is out to get her, and she lives her life accordingly. That view of God, I think, comes from looking at the way the world actually is. The front page of the newspaper, or the first 15 minutes of any television newscast, or a walk down the sidewalk, or a drive down the streets of any town or city in the country, splashes before our eyes more horror and violence and brokenness than our hearts can actually bear. What we see makes us ask, what kind of God is this that allows all this to happen? And the answer that follows is, a God who makes bad things happen to good people. I really love the show Seinfeld, and I still watch the reruns on a regular basis. There's this one episode about George, who is encouraged to see a psychologist. You don't need to wonder why. And when the psychologist asks him, do you believe in God, George? George answers, I do for the bad things. I think that expresses the way many of us feel about God. When a disaster happens, we say, that's an act of God. When someone dies, we say, it's the will of God. But is it really? Maybe we need a new perspective on things. You'll recall that wonderful movie and book called Dead Poet Society. The new teacher, John Keating, came into the Wilton Academy and started really turning things upside down. At one point, he actually stood up in front of his class on his desk. Why do I stand here? he asked. And Charlie, one of the students, said to feel taller. And John Keating said, I stand on my desk to remind myself that we must constantly force ourselves to look at things differently. The world looks different from up here. We must constantly endeavor to find a new point of view. One of the things that Jesus did for us was provide a new point of view, in fact, a new understanding of God, an understanding so different from the way the world operates that it borders on the absurd. Our gospel for today is Jesus' parable about the prodigal son. It's about a man who gets lost and just can't find himself, but the story is set in a chapter that looks like the lost and found department in the Bible. Jesus had been challenged by the religious elite of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees, for being hospitable to people who were not their kind. Jesus was all too friendly with the tax collectors and with sinners to suit their religious sensitivities. The tax collectors, you see, were those Jewish people who hired themselves out to the Romans to collect taxes, and so they were outcasts among their own people. Besides them were people so outside the religious establishment that they could only be called sinners. Now Jesus knew about the challenges from the scribes and the Pharisees, and so he told three parables, each of them having the same theme. That which is lost has now been found, and so it's time to gather friends for a party. The first is the parable of the lost sheep. When it is found, the owner says to his friends, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. The second is the parable of the lost coin. When the woman finds it, she says the same thing as the shepherd. Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. At the end of each of these little parables is this interpretation to the scribes and the Pharisees. There is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And then comes the third story in the list, the parable of the prodigal son. And the conclusion is the same as the other two. 
we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. Lost, found, rejoicing in heaven. That's the theme of the whole chapter. All that doesn't sound like a nasty old judge to me, because it's really about God, you see. It doesn't sound like a policeman near a traffic light or a computer programmer. It sounds like a God who's really into life for the fun and joy and laughter in spite of what goes on throughout the world. Think about the times in the Bible when it says that God actually laughs. In Psalm number 2, we're told that the one who sits in the heavens laughs. And he's laughing because people, the wicked, are truly trying to depose the one he is setting on the throne as the king of Judah. In this 37th Psalm, in verses 12 to 13, we read this, The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them, but the Lord laughs at the wicked. Or think about the time that God laughed at his chosen people, Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis 18, on the announcement of the birth of a baby to this couple who were 99 and 89 years old respectively, Abraham laughed, Sarah laughed, but God had the last laugh, and the boy's name was Isaac, which means he laughs. Or think about the time that God shared his laughter with them. When the baby is born, Sarah announces to her friends and relatives, I am named him Isaac because God has made laughter for me. Or think about Psalm 32, the psalm for the day, which calls the worshiper to be glad in the Lord and rejoice and shout for joy because the chesed of the Lord surrounds them, envelops them. That constant love, that covenant loyalty, that steadfast love is theirs. Therefore, laugh, rejoice, be glad, shout for joy. That's the new perspective that gives us a vision of God even when things of the world would lead us to believe otherwise. That great theologian Mel Brooks said it beautifully, laughter is our defense against the universe. What a difference that can make in the way we live our lives, to see everything that's going crazy in the world and to know that God has the last laugh, to know that God has a sense of humor that he shares with us too, and so we can laugh at the things that would otherwise overwhelm us. It can surely make a difference when we get so uptight by busying ourselves with the pots and the pans, the nuts and the bolts, the credits and the debits, that we refuse to take the time to sniff the daisies and the roses and the lilies while God's preparing to throw a party. It can make a difference when we get ourselves in a tizzy and then get upset because other people don't join in the tizzy with us. It's the way of the devil, Luther said, to make something out of nothing. Precisely, he put it this way, it's the supreme art of the devil that he can make the law out of the gospel. Once I debate about what I have done or left undone, I am finished. That sounds like the wife of my companion on the airplane. But, Luther continued, if I rely on the basis of the gospel, I have won. Stand up on the desktop and get a different perspective. Oh, it can make a difference in our lives when, like God, we can laugh at all the insanity in the world, the greed that drives people to manipulate and control so many others, the quest for power that causes some people to put others in horrible situations, the wars we fight in the name of peace, 
They're by no means funny issues, but to laugh in the face of what we see in the world is to see the possibility of redemption when others see only disaster and despair. To those who trust in God, God grants courage and farsightedness so that we can attach no greater importance to things that are seen than the visible things have in the eyes of God. That's the difference between sight and vision. What we see day in and day out is enough to wear us down, but to envision God's party for all sinners in that glorious day to come, that's something else. Something strange to the rest of the world, perhaps. Something so far beyond our human minds that other people out there might think we've lost it all. Something so absurd that even you and I can't come up with it on our own. The view from the top of the desk is one we can have only because the Holy Spirit gives us faith to believe the absurd. And Spirit-given faith enables us to see that God is not out to get us, but ready to celebrate with an uproarious party when any of us lost children is found. That's God's amazing grace. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. The new perspective Jesus offers us is that of a God who laughs when we are found and shares his laughter with us. It's the view from looking down from the top of the desk or perhaps from heaven. From that vantage point, we can believe the joyful promise that in spite of what is, what appears to our eyes, God will have the last laugh. That's the kind of God we worship. And as for how it affects our lives, well, in spite of our sorrows and our griefs, which will surely come, we have already begun to live out God's promise of everlasting life. Or maybe we should just put it the way Jesus did in the Sermon on the Plain back in the sixth chapter of Luke. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. That ends our discussion of the passages for the fourth Sunday in Lent, Year C. In the next episode, we'll talk about the lessons for the fifth Sunday in Lent. You will benefit, I think, from reading in advance of the podcast the biblical passages for the day. They will be Psalm 126. The first lesson will be Isaiah 43, verses 16 through 21. The second lesson is Philippians chapter 3, verses 4b through 14. And the gospel for the day is from the 12th chapter of John, verses 1 through 8. Be sure to look up the show notes and the accompanying blog at wrestlingwiththeword.com to help you prepare for listening. Before signing off, I want to thank Briaris Nada for the music during this Lenten season. The song is called Mellow Mix. And I am especially grateful to my daughter, Dana Gillen, who serves as my producer for these podcasts. Until next time, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Thank you.